Hi everyone, we're on Season 5, Episode 10 and I have Matt Van with me. Hi Matt! Hi Catherine, how are you keeping? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm well and I'm very pleased that um, I've recovered from uh, my uh, bout of Covid, uh, as indeed the rest of the family. So um, we're up and, up and raring to go. In fact, a little bit of a story there. I um, tele-interviewed a client um, the other day and as you do, um, you need to ask them, or it's common to ask them whether they've had Covid and they were hospitalized made full recovery and things like that and the chat chat turned around and said uh, on the phone turned around and said well actually yes i have had covid and do you know what i can now lift twice my normal amount at the gym and run twice as fast what he said it was like kryptonite (laughs) i was gonna say i've not heard it that way around i've heard it definitely the other way around but not that way Absolutely, absolutely. So um, this this particular chap has had a, a, a kind of renaissance almost. Um, oh. I, I can't say that's a very good um, uh, endorsement of going out no. and COVID. Oh, I absolutely not, no. Well, well, as we both know, we certainly wouldn't recommend it. But there you go, I thought um, that, that was a little bit different, so I thought I'd throw it in. Absolutely, absolutely. I was going to say, well, just in case we suddenly get any noise in the background at all, uh, my four-year-old is home because he tested positive for COVID for the second time since January uh, last week. He's fine. We're all fine. The rest of us are all negative. So we're kind of also wondering now if it was a bit of a false positive because, I mean, he's obviously completely in my face all the time as all four-year-olds are. And I've not got it again. And he's he's very close to his, um, especially his seven-year-old brother, again, very close to each other's faces. No matter what we do to keep them apart, you'll suddenly find them together like nose to nose and you think well yeah so well he's enjoyed having some time off school luckily it was partly over a weekend (laughs) so it wasn't too intense but uh yes very very interesting and uh as always very thankful for grandmas on hand so today we're going to be talking through testicular cancer and insurance this is the practical protection podcast So if we jump straight into things, Matt, and as always, we have a little bit of a chat beforehand, just to make sure that we are both sure about what we're going to be, kind of like what we're going to be saying, what kind of like route we're going to be taking in the conversation. And um, I know you've picked up some quite interesting thoughts on one of the kind of like one of the statistics or guidance things that I've uh, I've found. So I always do a bit of research beforehand on the topic because whilst I know about testicular cancer, I don't know all the statistics off the top of my head. And, um, and I certainly don't know anything and everything about the condition. So I also want to make sure that I bring a nice rounded kind of bit of background information when we start the podcast. So in the research, um, I came across the fact that um, in the UK, there are more than six cases of testicular cancer diagnosed every day. And testicular cancer itself accounts for 1% of cancers diagnosed in men in the UK. And I'd say, just looking at those statistics, it really surprised me, actually, because I was thinking it's only 1%. And I was thinking, surely, you know, what about all the others? You know, we've done podcasts before about prostate cancer, and it's obviously such a higher percentage of the amount of cancers that are diagnosed for men. But 1% to me, not that it's not slightly negating how important it is and how difficult it can be to have testicular cancer, but it sounds like such a small, small amount of people. But then when you actually... I think this probably comes back to the whole thing about statistics, doesn't it? When you look at the maths, it's 1%. So you think, oh, well, that's not many people. But then when you humanise it and you say, well, actually, that's six men every day in the UK. 
that it that feels a lot more like it's a lot more people. And I know it's not in the grand statistics of you know how many people are diagnosed with a heart attack every day in the UK, but still that you know it's six men, and that really that really surprised me actually, especially seeing that difference of how the numbers can just change so much depending upon the context in which you present them. The prime age for diagnosis is actually between the ages of 30 and 34 years. And maybe you'll be able to correct me at some point, Matt, if I get this wrong, but I'm sure I saw something that said that really, I think it's like over the age of 75, there doesn't tend to really be many people in that age group that um, are diagnosed with testicular cancer. So it is more sort of around sort of like middle no, I don't want to say middle ages at 30 because I'll probably get told off um for saying that <laughs> and I'm 37 and I don't necessarily want to think of myself as middle age um but um hang on am I 37 I'm gonna get myself confused now no I'm not I'm 36 <laughs> I was thinking to myself I don't remember turning but at 37. least it was the right way <laughs> exactly yes exactly the right way but then even better when it comes to the statistics when we're looking at things 91 percent chance of survival from a testicular cancer diagnosis which is just absolutely incredible and i think there is probably quite a few reasons why it's that high my my thought is because again matthew may correct me on this but my thought is probably that the testicles aren't something that people generally don't see and avoid in a sense of you know if it's something that's much more of an internal organ, then it's going to be much harder to notice or any kind of differences. And um, and obviously, in terms of sensitivity in that location, I'm trying to be so careful with my wording here, um, sensitivity in that location, I imagine a lot of men would probably notice quite quickly if there was any kind of particular changes. And I know you're definitely going to have some thoughts on this next one, Matt, because I know we've just um, had a quick chat about it. But when you look at um, the websites and different things like that about it, they do say that there's no specific way to prevent testicular cancer. So with a lot of um, cancers, when we're talking about things, there will be certain things like lifestyle factors that will say things like, try and keep a healthy BMI, don't smoke, uh, try and avoid alcohol as much as possible, regularly exercise. And what the evidence suggests is that those things don't necessarily have a direct um, correlation to testicular cancer being diagnosed. So that's quite a lot of things there that I've just gone through, Matt. So do you want to kind of take a uh, sort of like a bit with all of them and have a, a good think and generally as well, just tell us about testicular cancer, please? Okay, absolutely. No problems. Just to go back on something that you said about the over 75s you're, you're, you're absolutely correct that that statistic is certainly out there that is extremely rare as a cause of death in, in men over the ages of, of 75 which brings it back to this is a um a cancer of of younger people and i understand it to, to be the most uh Productive isn't the right word. It, it is the highest rank cancer, highest ranked cancer in for young males um, of all the cancers. So again, it kind of it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It puts a spin on um, uh, you know the, your one percent figure that you, mm. that you mentioned, um, but and also of course the um, six uh, diagnoses every day in the UK. Um, but for young men, it is the biggest killer. Right. which is an interesting one, I think. Okay, I mean, I'm sure uh, nearly all, if not everybody, knows um, the biological um, 
state of the testes, if you like, on, on an O level. Uh, but just in case there's one out there who doesn't, um, I should just repeat uh, that the testicles are two oval shaped male sex organs and they sit inside the scrotum on either side of the penis. Now, the testicles are an important part of the male productive system because they produce sperm. And I'll go on to that later on. The germ cells are very important. And also it produces the hormone testosterone, which obviously plays a a major role in in male sexual development. So apologies for that very basic biology lesson. But um, I think it's it's just worthy of repeating um, and refresh people's memories if indeed they do. Okay, um, as you've already said, Catherine, I think testicular cancer is no doubt one of the less common cancers. And if you look at all the cancers um, that occur, um, it is actually ranked the the 17th most common um, in between years of 2016 and 2018. I think the, the challenge that we do have is that the incidence rate has actually doubled since the mid 1970s and like testicular as again Catherine that you've mentioned um, there's a lot of lack of clarity about the reasons why uh, on some of these things and, and particularly the reason is unclear on why that has that there has been that doubling um, as you've already said the estimated lifetime risk is is one in 215 to call statistical on the, on our audience so that's less than one percent for males born after 1960. Okay. Uh, you've already talked about the numbers of people um, being diagnosed on a daily basis and also uh, 10-year survival rates okay now I thought some perspective might be useful in the context of uh, the, the 17th ranking and all the other numbers that we put together but this is um, an estimated type lifetime risk of one or less than one, sorry, one in 215 or less than 1%. Now, we'll look at the, if you compare that with the statistic that we see on critical illness plans um, all the time, just as a reminder, that one in 215, less than 1% compares with a lifetime risk of 50%. Uh, i.e. one in every two will be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime. So there's a statistic I think that we all know because of critical illness, uh, but that I think is also another perspective of where testicular cancer sits in with the overall um, cancer diagnosis area. Um, we've again, again, Catherine, you, you, you talked about it. Most common cancers very, very quickly. We're not talking about them today, but prostate followed by breast, followed by lung, followed by bowel. And that accounts for about 53% of all new cases. It's quite interesting looking back at um, some of the statistics that are, that are around. In fact, that in terms of, this is directly uh, testicular, so you'll have to excuse me. Yeah. But in terms of the last 10 years, thyroid and liver cancer have been the, have shown the fastest increases in okay. both sexes. In ladies, kidney, melanoma, skin cancer, head and neck cancers have shown marked increases, and kidney, melanoma, and Hodgkin's lymphoma in males. Testicular okay. cancer, despite me saying there's been an enormous increase back from um, since the 70s, doesn't get into those league tables. So again, I think we're looking at... Um, the way that statistics can be interpreted. Mm. 
the as you've already said, the key ages of diagnosis are aged between 30 and 34. To expand that a little, um, uh, testicular cancer is mostly mostly affects um, men between the ages of 15 and 49. So okay. that's obviously your 30 to 4, 34 fits in very neatly into the middle there. Yeah. In terms of the early signs, then um, an enlarged testicle or a small lump or area of hardness in the testicles is often the first sign. Um, but I, from memory, the NHS uh, do have um, five warning signs for testicular cancer. It's worth just running over these, I feel. Mm. So swelling or pain of discomfort in the scrotum, lump or swelling in either testicle, often painless. So I think that's something just for men to bear in mind. Okay. Or mothers or sisters or whatever, when they're talking to men. Uh, we've already touched on pain or discomfort in the testicles. Changing how the testicle actually feels, that's a little bit vague, I think, but I'll have to leave that one to your imagination, I think. Yeah. Um, a dull ache or heaviness in the lower abdomen or groin. So just don't think about testicles per se. If you're getting aches down down in that area, let me put yes. it that way, right down in the lower abdomen or the groin, just um, pay a little bit more attention than you normally would to, uh, to the particular areas. Yeah, I was going to say, I think generally it's it's just good advice for anything, isn't it, Matt? It is. In many ways, it's sort of like, you know, as, as a woman, if, you know, if your breast starts to feel uncomfortable, go get it checked out. If you're a man and your testicles start to feel uncomfortable, go get it checked out. And I think, I, I don't know if there's still this kind of thing of where sometimes, you know, men tend to not want to go and hassle a doctor and 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 things like that. And they're just, wow, well, they just say, oh, well, you know, see how it goes. But, you know, it is really something that's, it, if, there is, if there's probably persistence, maybe discomfort or persistent change or persistent lump, then really it's it's something that someone should really be getting checked. Absolutely. And I, I think it's the persistency is the is the difficult one to quantify, isn't it? And in any situation, testicular or any other scenario, um, I personally, and it's a personal view, this isn't an underwriting comment per se, but I think if you have a lump or a painful painful that will talk testicles as that's the subject we're on but for more than say seven days i think you need to see your doctor yeah um or, or get a medical view let me let me let me put it that way um but yes you're absolutely right it's 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 good advice for for all types of uh, ailments isn't it there's no two ways about it and good old, us men aren't great about seeing doctors as, as uh, it is well known i think it's certainly um, presented in the media um, so, so don't be shy. Um, doctors are there to help, and, and you know, as as you see all the time, they've been there, done it, seen it a hundred times. So don't don't feel embarrassed. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are two main types of testicular cancer, and they're really classified by the type of the cells where the, the cancer actually begins. And um, in generic terms, um, the, the most common are germ cell testicular cancer, and that accounts for 95% of all cases. Now, the germ cell, it alludes to something, or sorry, goes back to something I mentioned earlier. A germ cell is a type of cell the body uses to create sperm. Okay. Okay, so there is a kind of a generic terminology there, but th those um, are broken down. The germ cell cancers are broken down into two subtypes. And the, these ones will be 
um, more common to the underwriters and the claims folk out there, and also, of course, anybody who has um, suffered from testicular cancer themselves or, or had, a, had a friend suffer from the same. When you're saying germ cell, Matt, <clears throat> yeah. is it literally, is it germ, like G-E-R-M? Absolutely. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, um, I think I think germ cells, you can, you can get germ cell um a kind of a predetermined for wheat growing and all types of things. Okay. So, um, yeah, it, I think germ as in the bug kind of comes as a secondary to, to germ being the producer of something that grows. Okay. I think, I'm sure if anybody out, out there who is um, knows Latin or Greek would probably be able to put me right on that one. I was just um, thinking to myself, I'm sure you're saying germ. And I'm, thinking, <laughs> I'm surprised that somebody said like germ in relation to some kind of a, a cell. And, you know, it just seems like such a specific, I, I don't know, it just seems to have a different connotation depending upon what we're talking about it. Absolutely. I, I can certainly come up with a comment about um, something to do with germs um, and, and, and but I won't because we're. It, this is a. This will go out to the public. <laughs> so either which way, you've got two two German. Sorry, two main subtypes of, of uh, germ cell, and these are, as I say, um, would be probably more common to underwriters or or IFAs who, who tend to deal with pre-existing medical conditions. Mm. One uh, is called seminoma or seminomas, um, and they tend to grow and tend to spread more slowly than. The alternative group, which um, nobody has really, well, at the time, no, nobody really used their imagination to uh, to classify it as non-seminomas. So you you have to repeat that two two sub sorry two main subtypes. One is called seminomas, and the other non-seminomas. The non-seminomas uh, are more common than seminomas, and they account for sixty percent of all testicular cancers. Now, in terms of the non-seminomas. <clears throat> that really doesn't help me particularly, although it has to be said that they are treated the same as seminomas, um, initially at least. I'll go on to the different types of treatment a little later on. But your underwriters and, and, and um, people talking to people with uh, clients who have a history of uh, testicular cancer will also maybe hear the client mention teratoma or a doctor, for that matter, mentioned teratoma. And teratoma is a form of non-seminoma. Okay. That, does that make sense okay? Yeah, it does. I think sometimes, you know, when we sort of talk about different things, I'm not saying sometimes when we talk, as in like specifically me and you, I just think, you know, sometimes when we talk about medical things, sometimes it can start to feel a little bit, okay, so we've got things like carcinoma, now we've got seminoma yeah. and teratoma. And it's, it can be quite sort of, okay, yeah. but I suppose that's the thing, you know, it's really useful for, for advisors, you know, who are potentially speaking to people, if you hear seminoma, then it's, it's you know, obviously thinking straight away, right, that's possibly a cancer. And oh, then, yeah. yeah, and then to think of where that is. So yeah. the, so would, so non-seminoma, does that just mean it's a cancer that's different? Or does that mean like it was non-cancerous? Oh, no, 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 certainly malignant or okay. cancerous. It's, it's just a, 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 a subtype of a germ cell. Okay cancer okay so two types two different types effectively so you can put non-seminomas um you will see particularly these days they're often known or called teratomas as well okay okay there are other types of um of, of uh, testicular cancer but i won't go into those now now the even more slightly confusing thing uh to to um, the listeners might be that you can actually have a mixed testicular tumor all right 
and therefore when I say mixed it is literally mixed so you can actually have a tumour which is part seminoma and part non-seminoma. Oh how unusual. Uh, in, indeed um, I couldn't absolutely give you the physiology of all of that but they, they certainly do occur so. Would that be clusters like one tumour? Yes. Okay cause that's really that's really interesting to know because I think if I instinctively if someone had said to me that they'd had something and something I would automatically be thinking oh they've had two and yeah. even if they told me they'd had one I think my even though I would research and obviously and I would obviously speak to underwriters for clarification I, I do think that my instinct would be to think well that must mean two and um, so yeah. really really good to know that thank you absolutely no problem at all remembering that they are they're both germ cells types of germ cell yeah. and, and they are located in the testes so that kind of takes you back to the one, but you obviously have to try and remember that. And I, and I completely yeah. agree with you, what, you, what you're saying. Um, as I say, there are other types of um, tumour with specific names, but uh, let's, let's not go into them for the moment and the purposes yeah. of this chat. Okay, well, we looked at um, the, the, the term that you mentioned, Catherine, which was no specific ways to prevent testicular carcinoma. And yeah, it's an interesting one. When I... When I um, thought about the term prevent I suppose it could mean different things to me and to other people um, but I think it's certainly very important to mention that one of the causes of uh, testicular cancer is is uh, an undescended testicle or undescended testicles and that's uh, has this wonderful name of crypto orchidism oh. and it is the uh, most significant risk for testicular cancer. Okay, so the, the, you then get into this word prevention, and the reality is um, that uh, young infant boys, um, as far as I'm aware, will always have their testicles checked at almost their first meeting with a medic. Um, certainly, I remember it with my son. Um, it definitely really... happened with mine I can't remember if it was the first meeting or not but it definitely happened with mine and I didn't even think for a second it was anything to yeah. do with cancer I just thought well, oh the checking not... everything's there <laughs> no absolutely it's not that of course it's not in any way a diagnosis of cancer but yeah. it is that on the basis of prevention is better than cure yeah. then let's make sure the the testicles have descended because they're they, they're actually hidden in the abdomen say hidden they are in the abdomen and then they descend um at birth or, or within a few months afterwards um so the doc really is just saying well look if they're there great big tick and if they're not we just need to keep an eye on things here yeah and the testicles can descend um to be perfectly honest with you uh, over a good number of years but usually um within the first couple okay so three, three to five percent of boys have this condition at birth, i.e. undescended testicles. Um, and they usually descend within the first year, first, first year, first couple of years, maybe, but some do not. Um, and it's important that they are moved down in early childhood. And that can be done by a relatively simple operation. Um, Again, to talk statistics, men, so we are talking adult men here with undescended testicles have about three times, are three times more likely to develop testicular cancer than men with descended testicles. So it is important. And I can, for me, this is around prevention. 
So I would kind of take, I would disagree maybe with the word prevent. Um, however, I can I can see that there is a you know a, a play, not a particularly good one, but a play on the words here and how those words are interpreted. Okay. Um, the risk factors here and underwriters, this, I mean, we're talking here, and it's only testicles generally get sorted out, okay, because they are things that are checked by the doctors at birth. Um, but may have been missed, maybe the parents didn't want surgery to take place. Um, but risk factors um, are present from an underwriting testicular cancer perspective where the condition isn't corrected at all. Um, and also where the surgery hasn't taken place by the age of 11 to 13. Okay, so those are the risk factors that an underwriter would look at. Okay. For, both, well, for all of the risk products, namely life only, critical illness and income protection. Um, prevention, yeah. Otherwise, the only thing I can really um, harp on and talk about there is, the, is, is let's use the, um, the medical term cryptoorchidism. Um, and looking after yourself there, or looking after your, your son there, um, but otherwise prevent any other preventions and whys and wherefores aren't really known at this stage. And that's despite substantial research on the subject. It's, um, it, it's, it's amazing really, given these days of um, fantastic research and science, as we all know from COVID as an example, um, but there we go, not, not for this particular one. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say as well, I do really apologise because now my, my four-year-old is definitely back and he is nearby and um, and I've managed to uh, keep the, 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 the noise on my side quiet whilst you were just explaining everything brilliantly there, Matt, and um, and hopefully um, I'm not going to catch it too much when my uh, microphone is on. Um, so I suppose the next thing when we're looking at things in, in terms of like advice and in terms of getting insurance policies, one thing we always talk about with cancers or usually chat about with cancers is things like the staging and the grading are we looking still at staging and grading with testicular cancer are there any other kind of readings that we should be aware of um in terms of the the staging itself no you, you, i think you'll find that um every cancer i stick my neck out rather uh, on the every the word every but every cancer is going to have a staging of some sort or another so you're absolutely right that that um testicular cancer does have staging and um <sighs> Again, we have a type of cancer that has different stagings dependent on which parts of the world that you were like in, the, the, the way that the doctors, which, which kind of staging they adhere to. So, for instance, the Americans have a different one to, to most Europeans. But here we've got actually for, for UK Europe, we've got two types, sorry, two different ways of staging. Let me put it that way. And the first one very, very quickly runs through. Um, because they will all, I think, whatever it comes from, is they'll, they'll have a familiar ring. But the first one's a number staging, um, and stage one is where the cancer is um, contained within the testicle. And you will get um, a, a description of a stage 1A or 1B, depending on the size of the tumour. Now, importantly, and if I may, if we've got time, I'll just nip back to some of the treatments. because I think they may have maybe some interest to, to people. But one of the reasons why they think that, um, in fact, it is, I, I believe it is the only type of cancer where blood markers, tumour markers, in other words, play such, I said the only, is the one, it's the type of cancer that 
blood tumour markers play such an, an important role. They play an enormous role in the diagnosis and prognosis of this particular type of cancer. So that's quite interesting because I'm just going back to like in my head, like the prostate cancer. Um, yeah. When we're looking at that, and obviously there was things like the PSA readings with prostate yeah. cancer, and and there does seem to be quite a lot. I wouldn't want to upset anybody here, depending upon which way they feel about it. But there's quite a lot of debate about whether or not they actually accurately represent how much, in a sense, you know, in a sense, the cancer is affecting a certain area and affecting the prostate. Um, but obviously in a different range then so obviously for the testicular cancer the, the specific blood test for that is actually pretty accurate it would sound then there, there are two but yes very much so you know so much so that the the medical profession um puts a lot of weight on the readings and uh, more than any other form of cancer is my understanding so I'll, I'll nip on to those a little bit later um stage stage so we've got stage one one a and one b and you'll also find um, levels relating to the, the, the tumour markers as well, often presented on um, hospital reports or, or reports from the GP. And that is it's numerically 1S. OK, I'll just go into that at the very end of this, this particular part of the, of the um, presentation. But so stage that's stage one. I talked about 1A and 1B and 1S. Stage two spreads, it shows that the tumour is spread into the, to the nearby lymph nodes in the pelvis or the abdomen. Um, and stage three, God bless, is split into three, three sub-stages. 3A, where the spread is into the distant lymph nodes. And the, importantly, the marker levels, the tumour marker levels are normal or only slightly raised. 3B, which is spread to the local lymph nodes, but there's higher marker levels. And 3C, where it's the same as stage, stage 3B, but you have very high marker levels. Um, and those would be, I've talked about um, S1, the very high marker levels could be de demonstrated by S3. Okay, so I'm sorry, this that probably sounds very complicated. All, and as I say, I'm not aware of any other cancer. You, you're going to have stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four cancers that um, have appeared or, or been mentioned on these podcasts. But to the best of my knowledge, the staging of the blood markers is a, is a is something that is unique to uh, testicular cancer. I'll just whip through those very quickly. Yeah. S zero means the mark the tumor markers are normal. S one slightly raised, S2, moderately raised, S3, very raised. Okay, so you'll have, as I say, stage one, A, B, stage two, stage three, A, B, uh, C, um, but you'll also see this, this staging around the tumour markers as well, and those are, those are very, very important. So with that, so say like if somebody were to say to us, right, I've had stage 2A testicular cancer, um, so it would be that would so there's that, but then there'd also be additional staging around the blood marker. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So from an advice point of view, so say like if I was speaking to somebody who had um who'd had testicular cancer, and I'm trying to get as much information as possible beforehand to come to you, Matt, to yeah. help me understand if we can potentially underwrite it. So obviously the key thing, absolute key thing, is knowing the staging and the grading, which would be 
I kind of want to say almost the generic version now, in, but I know it's not generic, but, you know, sort of like the... I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, the, the overall staging and grading. If I could then also have the staging and grading of the blood marker, that I'm assuming would make it even, it'd be even more useful to you. It would provide an awful lot more information and more useful to determine the type of risk that an underwriter was assessing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then. That's really good to know, because I think that's, again, I imagine a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think to ask that about, you know, thinking that there'd maybe be two versions of it or two readings of it. And, and I don't know how many people would necessarily know themselves as well. So I imagine for, for an advice, you know, in, in terms of like, I, I know I've, I, I do say this to people generally when I'm training as well, is that if you're going to do research for somebody and they have had a cancer, then then pretty much in almost all cases, make sure you have the staging and the grading, because you know, the, the difference between me coming to you, Matt, with someone who was stage 1A and coming to you with someone who was stage 3B is phenomenally different in terms of what the outcome would be um, insurance-wise. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So I generally, you know, I, I will look into things for people, but when I'm really looking into an option for somebody, if they're wanting a, quite an accurate expectation, then I will be saying to them, right, I need to know this. And usually it's a case of, oh, we've mentioned before about the TNM score. So that's Tango November Mike score. Yeah. And that can be either on a specialist letter or people can just ring up their GP and ask them. And yeah. I think the only time that I've not had, the majority of people when I've said to them, look, I need this because basically if you explain it right to them from the start, you can say, well, look, if I don't have this information, then basically I can give you a best case scenario, but the worst case scenario could be that all of this is, is not possible with this insurer. Um, and I'd need to pick a different insurer for you or you know, go to a specialist policy potentially. It might be that it is absolutely best case and everything's fine and we could go to any insurer, but we wouldn't know without that information the only time for me that I've not been able to get that information and I think it's something for again advisors to be quite aware of is um I've spoken to I, I think it's there's one person that really sticks out in my mind it might have been a couple of people where in a sense they've they've kind of compartmentalized the fact that they had cancer and they're wanting insurance they know they need to tell me about cancer they've had but they also want it to be something that's kind of over there. They want it to not be something that they have to relive and go back through that information. Some of them have completely destroyed all of the records that they had in terms of specialist letters um, because they just could not face having that information in the house. And that kind of reminder, even if it's in a box in the loft, you know, or hidden somewhere and somewhere, it's too much for them to face. And also then even speaking to the GP to find out can be too much. So at that point, for people, I would then maybe do a situation of speaking to an underwriter and saying, right, if it was stage one, what are we, you know, and it was this long ago, what do we generally expect? And again, I know that the grading obviously comes into it, but I think at that point, everybody then just has to be very, very conscious of the, almost in the sense of the vulnerability of the person that you're supporting and how we need to try and be as open as possible about what we think might happen and just give them those facts in front of them so that you know, instead of saying, well, well, I can't do anything to support you because I don't have all this information. It's a case of, right, okay, based upon your situation and how you're feeling and the information we have, in a sense, the best that I can do is prepare you for what it might be. And if this was a situation, this is what it might be. If it was this, you know, and it, it kind of becomes a bit of a bit of a long um, explanation that you have to give somebody and you have to try and set it out nicely so they can it's easily kind of read through it. And there's a 
for it to be as kind of as transparent as possible. Um, but it's really important to just make sure that you you try and do the best as possible, but also wherever you can possible, make sure you get that staging and grading um, when you are providing somebody. There's, there's lots of other things which we'll probably come across, which is I'll discuss today, which is obviously time of diagnosis, time of any chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery. And it's not just that, it's how many people tend to either remember, well, I had chemotherapy from March to September, or they may turn around and say, well, I had six rounds. And so it's just remembering all that information and getting all that information so that when you do speak to somebody like Matt, um, he can then really give you a, a very clear idea as to what he would be, in a sense, allowed to do, given the insurer's rules and everything in, in terms of supporting that person. Yeah, I, I, would, I completely agree with all of that. I think there are, there are two points I would make. Um, I know that in a previous life when I was chief underwriter of, a, of an insurer, we did um, <clears throat> some analytics of the telephone um, inquiries that we had from IFAs and by far the largest portion of we couldn't really give an answer was on cancer because IFAs were phoning in without the information that you just relayed. We can give you a starter for 10 and an end game but of course most cases will fit in, in the middle and that was the biggest um, um, challenge yes from a resourcing perspective that um, that particular insurer had so absolutely the, the more precise information you can get um, it, it really helps speed the process up I have a friend who is exactly the, the type of individual that you mentioned just won't talk about her cancer ever it's so upsetting for her even though she's you know touch wood and certainly a long time afterwards can't even talk about it now and those are you know, as you quite rightly pointed out those are incredibly sensitive uh, uh, times i'll also add in terms of the um the um, emotions i um and, and cancer in particular i saw i read an article recently um on linkedin whereby it was around um mental illness and asking questions about mental illness and uh, you know, it, it occurred to me um, during the time, well, rather like my friend, um, would, I, would I really like to be questioned heavily about when I personally was diagnosed with cancer? Um, because that was an incredibly stressy time. Um, I, know, I know that suicide and, and, and suicidal ideations, ideations are incredibly difficult things to talk about. But also, I would throw in that when you're sat in front of a doctor with your wife and they say you've got one in two chance of living five years, as occurred to me, that is incredibly distressing as well. So I think we need to, you know, it's something, Catherine, that you, you bang the drum on enormously about being uh, receptive to people's emotions when they talk about. And also, you know, I talk about cancer. We talked about mental health, suicide, but we're also, you know, heart attack, stroke. These are incredibly emotional events for the majority of people. And, um, you know, more power to your elbow to, to raise the point that advisors need to be sympathetic in total to um, these these conditions that arise anyway i'll get off my i'll get off my hobby horse <laughs> but they're really just re-emphasizing what you're saying no absolutely i think it comes down to as well the difference between and you know it's, it's a bit of a difficult one but you know when it comes down to that whole idea of are you an advisor or are you a salesperson and i know different um companies work in different ways in terms of like different targets and things like that but when you are speaking to people with health conditions and if by the very nature 
of working in the protection insurance space, you will, the majority of the time, be talking through people's medical history. You might be someone who speaks to barely anybody with anything on their medical history or their family medical history. Um, I would say it's probably quite rare, actually, to be in a situation where it's somebody that has absolutely nothing. I was going to say, I, I do get that. I sometimes, um, I tend to get it if somebody, because obviously for the very nature of us as a business as Cure, if, if I don't speak to somebody with any health conditions or family health conditions, it's usually that they're doing some incredibly scary and high risk sports of some sort. Um, <laughs> that's quite interesting to hear about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, in terms of it, you know, it's, it's how you view your clients as well. So, you know, if you, uh, you know, and sometimes it might be it might not be the advisor's fault. They might be in a very high pressure environment. There may be incredible um, uh, requirements upon them about how many people they speak to, in a sense, how many what's classed in our technical side of things, the client fact finds, how many client fact finds they do a day um, or a week, and how much you know profit they're bringing into the company, and from the way of the business culture. It could well be that somebody starts to lose the ability and the time to actually take the time to speak to someone and yeah. really help them through the conversations. And you know, there'll be some advisors who just aren't don't have the personality yeah. to do yeah. that. You know, I mean, we, we've got to be honest as well. You know, we can't say that everyone and everyone can do these things. Some people aren't necessarily they don't necessarily have the mindset or or the empathy to be able to I don't think you know when I'm saying empathy there is a, a, a very significant amount of empathy that's needed for certain medical conditions but that's not to say that you have to be a thousand percent empathetic to be able to be an advisor it's no, just no. that you must be able to change and move between your personality the client's personality what they're going through and become kind of the person that they need to be able to support them during the conversation and um and I think there are some say some advisors who naturally just because of the people that they are it just doesn't necessarily work for them so they're maybe going to be more suited to to maybe a route that doesn't need that you know maybe sort of like the group insurance world where you don't need to be really going into medical size of things yeah. it's very procedural yeah. um it's very you know so like documentation and compliance and, and that suits them um and then you will have as say some firms where somebody is absolutely in the right kind of person and the right kind of mindset but just because of circumstance of the role that it doesn't happen so when we talk about this and obviously i know we do the podcast in terms of helping advisors and underwriters and charities and public to to understand what's going on when we do say advisors what for me, when I say that, I'm also talking about you know intermediary companies as well, because it is a specific culture that really helps to sort of stand out and help clients that are in this uh, kind of um, situation. So I just thought I'd quickly have a little side, I don't know, rant thing about that. <laughs> I, I think it's important. And what I would say is that, that I think certainly, I think where we both come from in the last five, 10 minutes is, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily a particular type of pre-existing medical condition it can be it can scraps um scan an awful lot mm. uh, of different medical conditions um and um yeah i, I just can't i have to say um I, I completely agree with everything that you say i'm wary i agree of with time. you too <laughs> yes i'm wary of time too so very oh, quickly I, then if i uh, can if I, I just point two things out yeah Sorry. go for it um, please um I just thought they might be of interest to people, um, certainly the second one. The first one was just to, on this whole um, debate about family history. 
mm. whether it's important or not. Um, I would just add with testicular cancer, if you have a, a, a history of a testicular cancer with your in your father, you're four to five times more likely to develop testicular cancer, and in your brother, eight to nine times more likely. Right. So statistically, there, it, that, that, that is pretty significant. I thought finally, what may be of interest to the listeners, um, not necessarily purely from advising on testicular cancer cases, but for background, that one of the areas that's really changed the, um, the face of uh, testicular cancer treatment is chemotherapy. And rather like we talked about blood tumours earlier on, which I think you, you, you mentioned, Catherine, that you found very interesting. Yeah. You ask yourself, why is, why is chemotherapy so effective with um, people who have chemotherapy, 90%, 96% cure rate? Oh. And the key to, key to uh, and I've written this down, okay, so not to, I, I, I apologise to everybody, but the key to success appears to lie in the cancer's stem cells. Okay. Which are more sensitive to chemotherapy than stem cells found in any other type of cancer. Oh. Any other type of cancer, the chemo can attack the um, the cancer's stem cell, which I thought was fascinating, to be honest with you. And just to remind people of stem cell, you probably, well, maybe a couple of years ago now, but it would have been uh, in the media an awful lot about embryo embryonic um, stem cells versus adult stem cells. Mm. But really, the stem cell is... Um, uh, the body's raw materials and from the stem cell um, other cells are created with specialized functions so it's where your specialized functions uh, cells come from where they originate from and specialist um, uh, cells um, that are generated could include uh, blood, you know, blood cells brain cells heart muscle cells bone cells would be another example but I thought that would be interesting just as a, as a, as a sign off, because that's something yeah. I hadn't really um, come across. Not really anything to do per se with underwriting, but I thought of general medical knowledge that would might be interesting to the viewers. Uh, sorry, to the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So, so from and, that and now I'll of, be quiet. <laughs> no, I was going to say from that kind of thing. So to me, that kind of makes me think. So we're saying, you know, specifically targets, you know, especially the um, the stem cells for where the cysticular cancer um, has happened. So to me, that's kind of like, again, yeah, with stem cells, I kind of think straight away, I'm thinking of like regrowing organs, you know, you've managed to get a stem cell, you've been able to do something. Um, So it's almost as if it's, it's going into that area. And it's almost as if it's, I kind of imagining like a bit of like an eraser, you know, like yeah. a rubber and it's going in, it's going to the stem cells. It's just going along going, you know what? I'm going to erase all this cancer stuff off you. Let's start afresh. Let's get a blank slate Absolutely. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Lovely way of putting it, as you always do, I might add. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I imagine some people would be like, what is she on about? Um, So I think then to just end off, again, because I'm thinking time-wise, I'll give a case study. Um, So at Kiora, we had a couple that came to us and we identified that they needed some joint-level life insurance. And they were both smokers. So for anybody who's new to the podcast or new to the insurance world, if somebody's classed as a smoker, then that effectively means that the premiums that they're going to pay for the insurance when it's protection insurance are going to be doubled because there is seen to be a much higher risk of a claim happening for people that are smokers. 
And um, with this couple, the male life, he had had testicular cancer and um, his had been stage two. And when we did the research, we put the application forward. The only thing that we knew was that it was either A or B grading and so what we did is when we did the research we'd approach the underwriters we said look we know it's stage two what is it going to be if it's it's grade a what's it going to be if it's grade b and then obviously we then decided which was the best insurer talked it through with the clients and they wanted to go ahead and for this person about um, five and a half years before the policy started he had had the last of his treatments so initially he'd had a testicle removed he then had two rounds of chemotherapy and uh, obviously very luckily as well the cancer hadn't spread at all so it hadn't known what what's done is uh, metastasized it hadn't gone into any lymph nodes or any other nearby organs and what we were able to arrange was £90,000 of joint level life insurance over 21 years for a premium that was just under £15 per month. And um, something I want to clarify with that as well, just a little bit further, is that pricing is the standard rates. So that means that this person, this gentleman, was accepted for the insurance, even though he'd had stage two a testicular cancer, um, he was given that insurance without any you know, if someone else had gone for it in the exact same situation as him, I meaning in terms of age, smoker status, everything else, and hadn't had the cancer, they would have been given the exact same price too. And I think um, what's really important as well to say is £15 per month. Now that is for two people. And to bear in mind as well, that's also on the smoker rates, which means it's already been increased. So if they weren't smokers, the pricing from that would have been under £10 per month. Uh, So what I'd like to say is thank you again to everybody for listening. It's always lovely to have you here listening in with us. And thank you again, Matt, for all of your insights. My pleasure. (laughs) It's always a pleasure to have you on. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too, thanks to our sponsors, Octo members. So thank you again, Matt, and I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye.